Welcome to the Internal Comms Podcast with me, Katie McCauley. Listeners, there is one group of communication professionals I really wanted to speak with before we finally say goodbye to 2020, those working in our National Health Service. Now, I know we have many listeners worldwide, so for context, the National Health Service, or NHS, was founded 72 years ago on the principle that health services should be comprehensive, universal and free at the point of delivery. A health service based on clinical need, not ability to pay. There are around 1.5 million people working for the NHS. And I think it is very safe to say that regardless of this current crisis, it is a cherished institution, often described as our national jewel in the crown. Early in 2020, healthcare professionals in the UK, like those worldwide, found themselves on the front lines of a battle against a new and deadly disease. All of us felt a profound appreciation for the tireless efforts of doctors, nurses, ambulance crews and all those working behind the scenes in diagnostic, ancillary and support roles who were risking their own lives to save others. And so for me, it was an absolute privilege to speak with three experienced and passionate communication professionals who have supported, informed, inspired and listened to NHS employees throughout a year like no other. Amanda Nash is Head of Communications at Plymouth Hospitals NHS Trust. Ross Wiggum, Deputy Communications Director at Northumbria Foundation Trust. And Adam Brimelow is Director of Communications at NHS Providers. This conversation actually turned into a moment to reflect on the role of communication throughout this crisis, to share some lessons learned And I'm pleased to say, gave me an opportunity to say thank you to a group of communication professionals that have been in the eye of the storm in this crisis and who have proved beyond any doubt in the power of great communication. So Amanda, Adam and Ross, thank you so much for joining me on the Internal Comms podcast. Probably the best way to kick off is for each of you just to introduce yourselves. Tell us a little bit about your role and that way listeners can put a voice to a name. So ladies first, if that's okay, Amanda. Uh, Thanks, Katie. My name's Amanda Nash. I'm Head of Communications at University Hospitals Plymouth. So we are a big major hospital. We're a major tertiary centre. We're 12 floors high and several buildings wide. We have about 8,500 staff and we have more than half a million patient episodes a year. And we're the biggest health care facility between Bristol and America. So we're quite large and it's a really, really interesting job work with very, very fantastically compassionate and skilled professionals. Thank you, Amanda. Over to Ross. Hello, Katie. Hi, I'm uh, Ross Wiggum and I'm the Deputy Director of Communications at Northumbria Healthcare. We're the kind of most northerly healthcare provider in England and we provide healthcare services from the border of Scotland right down to Tyneside. We have about 12,000 staff uh, working across 10 hospitals and uh, out in the community as well, so pretty much um, right at the sharp end of, of healthcare. Thank you, Ross. 
And Adam, in a slightly different role. Yeah, so I'm Adam Brimlow. I'm Director of Communications at NHS Providers. And we're a membership organisation for NHS trusts and foundation trusts covering hospitals, mental health, community and ambulance services. And we have 100% of trusts in voluntary membership. And we work to create a favourable environment for our members to champion their causes, raise their concerns, but also to promote and celebrate their successes. Brilliant, Adam. And I really want to get into sort of how you do that, listening to your members and reflecting their views. But before I do, before we even get into COVID-19 as a crisis, I thought it might be useful for listeners just to take a little bit of a step back. If people aren't aware of how you would normally communicate with your audiences, I'm thinking of the scale, the complexity, the diversity of the internal audience across the National Health Service. You've got, I believe, almost a million, about a million people work for the service. So how would you normally, aside from this crisis, how would you normally communicate with people? What channels, what processes, what tactics usually prove most effective? I think it's really important to note that our staff workforce is made up of so many different groups. So you can have doctors who've trained for a good sort of 10 plus years. And although they're called junior doctors, they're still doctors in training. We have nurses, we have healthcare scientists, we have volunteers, we have computer experts, we have HR professionals. There are so many different staff groups within one NHS. And in our trust, we refer, we have a hashtag that we use a lot, which is called hashtag one big team. And we often talk about the unseen staff and volunteers. So people working in our labs, in our sterilisation and disinfection units. Um, We used to have a neurosurgeon called Anne who said the cleaner who worked in her theatres was just as important as she was because without him or her doing their job, she couldn't do hers. So that's very much our ethos about having one big team. So I think there is no single bullet that will hit everybody. There's no single method that will get to everybody instantly. But there are lots of different methods. So we use everything from email, specialist meetings. So, for example, our consultant body, I attend our consultant body meetings and often am asked for advice on what, you know, what they might like to discuss or um, input into that. We use an app, listening sessions. We run big conversations, emerging stronger out of COVID sessions we've run. We have things called Schwartz Rounds, which allow staff to reflect on the emotional side of providing healthcare with each other in a safe environment. We have staff surveys. We have staff networks. So we have a network for colleagues from the BAME community, a women's network. We have a DAWN network, disability and wellbeing network, that, that is. We have screensavers. We use a lot of social media. We've got a closed staff Facebook group. So there are a myriad different methods. One thing that never fails to surprise me is if you put something out about car parking or some kind of offer or something that's really interesting, you will be amazed at how quickly words spread. So my learning is always from that, that there is not one single method, but there are many. And the strongest is probably word of mouth that is still beats everything. And that, therefore, is about us making our content relevant. Thank you. I think also listeners will be very interested, now you've said all that, in the size of your team, because that sounds like a lot of activity. So we're less than eight whole time equivalents and we do everything. So we do our own filming, we do our own websites, we code, we film, we do podcasts. 
we are responsible for liaising with our MPs and all our elected members. We have a great relationship with our local MPs. We do everything from internal communications, external communications, patient communications, especially patient videos. We do a lot of patient information videos about procedures, etc., things that they might be coming in for. But less than eight whole time equivalents. I think mm. you work, when you work in NHS comms, there is something about it being a bit of a vocation. People don't want to leave and often want to come back, but it's hard work too. I can imagine. Ross, do you have anything to add to that? And also you wear two hats, don't you? Because you're also the lead for comms people sort of nationwide as well. Yeah, so I, um, with Adam, I, I'm the sort of elected chair of, uh, of NHS Providers Comms Lead Network. So that is a kind of group of all NHS provider comms leads who sort of get together regularly also virtually as well now, unfortunately, which isn't, isn't quite as good as our, our, our normal face-to-face ones, I think. But we'll cover, try and take the temperature of, of things happening and, and how we can support communicators in that really vital role as it is at the moment. So I think that does give me a good sense of, of what issues people are facing. And I think, as Amanda says, you know, there's diff- different challenges around the country, different size teams and so on. And one thing that just struck me there is thinking about the vast, different audiences that we'll have. I think, you know, having worked in the private sector previously and in other places, you'd be very focused on your audience and who that is. In the NHS, it's a hugely disparate group of people. Amanda's just, you know, talked a little bit about, I think there's 800 and some different roles. You know, everyone from sewing machinists right through to to surgeons. And to give you an idea of the sort of variety, during the crisis, believe it or not, I've, I've changed jobs, so probably could have planned that worse going from one kind of smaller, very centralised NHS organisation to the one I'm in now, which is probably one of the biggest, I think the biggest geographically in the country. So two very different organisations. And, and But some of the common themes are the different people you meet. So I met a lady the other day, Ashley, who is a district nurse here who sees people out of hours. Now, she can drive 400 miles in a night, typical wow. night. And, and, and a normal day for her could be in one of the most deprived sort of parts of the country, seeing someone in a city right through to shooing sheep off the road and clearing snow <laughs> on the border of Scotland. So wow. I think we're always mindful that there isn't one right way of doing this. And actually, there's so many different audiences um, that we have to try and connect with to, to find that positive stream of things coming through an organisation. And I mean, there's nothing new I can tell you that Amanda hasn't told you about. It, it channels that we use, we try and use as many as we can. And, and we find that staff Facebook is one of the, the sort of key channels now, actually, in terms of people being able to access it remotely on their own terms, find it convenient with peer support. And aside from all the normal stuff that we do, we do a monthly live Q&A with our chief executive. Right. That is really powerful as well. You know, you'll give people a really honest and open uh, update about what's going on and then have a, have a hosted open chat. I suppose the slight difference between this one and the previous one is that's always been virtual because, you know, you could be sat in North Tyneside and actually speaking to someone several hundred miles away in Berwick. And that's a very different mindset to get around, I think. Just on that, are people quite open in asking questions directly of your chief executive? Do you have that kind of culture? Uh, Amanda's nodding her head. Yeah, I think we do. I think it's not out of um, out of cultural. It's, it's a nerve-wracking thing to do, stand up and ask your chief executive a question. It is. And I, I think everyone feels that way, but certainly Sir James is very happy to, to take those questions and actually really good about that and really mindful that uh, that staff need those sort of answers and a very visible leader from the front having 
previously had a national rule as well. So um, so I think we do we do pretty well on that. And there's lots of other forums that that would get for people to if, if they don't feel you know comfortable enough to, uh, to to speak in real time. Speaking up in the NHS is a really big thing, Katie, because it's to do with safety. So we're often encouraging staff to speak up in many different ways. And all NHS trusts around the country have what's called freedom to speak up guardians. So if you felt that you couldn't go to your line manager or you couldn't go to your team leader or anybody else, there are a variety of other people, including, for example, our pastoral support care team, our chaplains, um, all these people called freedom to speak up guardians who you can go to and they can raise issues for you. So I think speaking up is something the NHS has worked really hard to encourage. So actually, I don't know about Ross, but when we have our Q&As with Anne or any of our executive team, the questions are just flowing. And um, actually, that's really lovely for the leaders because they know people are interested. And so it's a lovely feeling when that happens. There's lots of research. I mean, I'm thinking of two books in particular, Humble Inquiry, and I think it's Black Box Thinking, but both of them talk about the importance of uh, well, things wouldn't have gone so wrong if people felt able to speak up. So. Absolutely right. Going in with those appreciative inquiry questions. So there's very open questions. So not what's gone wrong here, but I wonder what's happened here. What might we learn from this? So that's very much part of our thinking here. Adam, would it be fair to call you a poacher turned gamekeeper? <laughs> you spent, was it 14 years with the BBC as a health correspondent before joining NHS providers? Yeah, well, that that's right. And actually many years before that with the BBC in a, a variety of reporting roles. But for 14 years prior to coming to NHS providers, I was BBC Health correspondent, focusing mainly on radio, but also doing television online as well. And then the opportunity presented itself to come to NHS providers, an organisation I'd worked with a fair bit. And I'd got to know the chief executive and Deputy Chief Executive Chris Hobson and Saffron Cordery at various encounters. I knew it was an organisation that had lots to say and would say things in an interesting, clear and engaging way. And it felt like, a, I suppose it was a moment in my career where there was a, a chance for a new career, a new direction, a chance to try something different after being in, in one role for such a long time. So I, I was very pleased to have that opportunity to come to NHS providers. Is there a lesson from all those years with the BBC about content, about storytelling that you still use today, that you still keep front of mind? Very much so. And as Director of Communications, I take, I think, probably a more than usually active role in our media activities, which are themselves an important part of, of what we do within our comms team by no means the, the sole or most important one, but it is a key part of our activity. And it's one area where I feel I can really bring some added value in terms of the, the contacts and relationships I've got with leading health journalists built up over, over many years. In terms of those lessons, I think there are some real principles that apply in my current role and I think would be true for any comms team in terms of their relations with media, which is in terms of, of being very clear about your story, know your audience, think about your audience and how they're going to be able to understand what you're trying to say, be authentic, don't dissemble and keep it simple. And I think these are 
often hard-learned lessons, and I think that they stand us in good stead. I think in my relationship with journalists, I have found the overwhelming majority want to do a good job with integrity. There are many journalists out there who are really sympathetic, supportive of the NHS, like our wider society. Most of them have deep-rooted contacts into the NHS through friends, relatives, and so on. So there's an opportunity for us to harness that goodwill. And that's the, the approach that I bring to the work that I do with journalists. Of course, there are pitfalls and complications that we have to navigate around. But I think it's important to keep sight of those elements in our relations. And I think that has stood us in good stead. So I'm going to take you back now to the beginning of this crisis. So back to sort of February time, I guess. What was happening at the beginning of this pandemic? What were those early days like? And what were those initial challenges that you faced? I'm curious, did you all realise pretty early on the scale of this crisis? Just reflecting back to the kind of February, I suppose, I, I was getting ready to start a new job. I was thinking about, you know, leaving the organisation was at and all the exciting things I was going to do in a new one. And I remember I got called into a sort of fairly low-level meeting at first, saying, oh, well, you know, this stuff about um, what's happening in China and other parts of the world. And to be honest, I had half an eye in it because naturally I was getting ready to, to do something else in my career. Not for one minute did I think would be where we are now. Uh, and actually it, it unfurled, if you remember, a bit like the sort of horror movies you see on TV where it was slow, slow, then suddenly very, very fast. And we very rapidly went from something that was, you know, we're ready ourselves for all sorts of incidents. So, you know, emergency planning and things, this is pretty much part of the day job. This was very much out with that. And, and very quickly, it went from, you know, a few people around the room to being a proper full-scale gold command, uh, which I was sitting on and really understanding the depth of it to the point where we thought, in two weeks I'm due to leave and this might not happen. That was the kind of first bit of it and actually the speed at which it suddenly went from headlines about something in China to actually it's in our door. There's a case in Newcastle. So actually Newcastle, I think, had the in the RVI, which isn't one of, one of our hospitals, but had the first two cases from tourists, I think, in, in, in York who travelled up there. So it, it did unfurl really, really quickly um, and certainly wasn't something that I was expecting to be working on in, in my lifetime. No. Amanda, did you see the same? Suddenly it was upon us. I think we all love to be able to say, yes, we saw it coming, but we didn't really. I often reflect back to the first walk around we did of some of our wards. With our, um, I went around with my chief nurse and our infection control team, and we were looking at possible wards to use as, as to care for COVID patients. And then it felt like within no time at all, those wards were closed and they were being used for, and they had big signs on the door saying, Red Ward, do not enter. They were closed. But our corridors were lined with beds. Now, we we are a hospital that works at near enough 100% capacity a lot of the time. We are very, very full. So we never have spare beds. Um, and the NHS did something that it has never done ever, in my knowledge, and that was we cancelled most of our elective work and most of our other work other than emergencies. And so I took some photos then of some of the quietness of our corridors mm -hmm. and some of the pictures, rows upon rows of empty beds, because we were just seeing COVID and emergencies. Obviously, much has changed since then, but there was a very short period 
when we weren't doing planned work, so seeing people for their planned work. And the streets were very quiet coming to work. You know, our hospital, one of our, our major hospital, is more like a big town than it is a hospital. You know, 50,000 people a week walk through our main entrance alone. Wow. We've got chapels, cafes, et cetera, et cetera. And yet the place was so eerily quiet in those very first few weeks. I have to say, and I'm looking at Adam as I say this, the NHS was there for emergencies and now we are doing all of the work that we would normally do. But there was a short period within which it was eerily quiet. And you never say the key word in the hospital. I'm almost taking my life in my hands while saying it. It was very, very quiet, very, very still. And there wasn't the usual hustle or bustle. There wasn't the patients, the families. Uh, we had, you know, we've all stopped visiting. So it went from being a small town to being a very, very quiet place. Mm, I can imagine. People often ask and they say, you you know, were you frightened about going into work? But I I think we were so intricately involved as a team in the planning for it that not once did I ever think it doesn't feel safe. I think I would just add to that, to what Amanda said, is actually there were two kind of points when it sort of struck home to me the seriousness and and actual otherworldliness of what was happening. And the first was when we kind of emptied out people who didn't really need to be there and there was sort of a core of people within the hospital and we came out one night and someone had put these kind of thank you cards on all the cars. I just thought, God, what's going to happen? What do I think we're gonna, was going to happen to us? And then the second piece was, um, which is, was quite emotional, actually, is, is, is a lot of, I work with a lot of people who were kind of have a clinical background or in nursing, and they've moved on to do other things in the NHS. So, you know, they might be trainers or they might be, you know, working human resources, one of the other kind of things who were getting fitted out to go back and work in the most, you know, and put themselves at quite a high risk in, in some cases. And that was the real emotional moment for me of, of friends and colleagues and people who I would normally kind of, you know, go out at night with and, and socialise with suddenly were, were sort of marching off to war. And that's what it felt like on the front line. And it was a very, I think sometimes with the benefit of hindsight, we stripped that out. It was a very emotionally raw time and very difficult time because um, we all have families of our own. You know, I've got, I've got three children at home wondering where I am and, and what's happening. And actually, that was what I found very difficult to cope with, I think, looking back on. Absolutely. I can imagine. Adam, I believe that the NHS providers were actually providing quite an important service at the beginning, just making people aware of where PPE stocks were and so on. That was sort of some of the early challenges you were facing. Well, that's right. And in some ways, I mean, it's been well documented, isn't it? The, the NHS hadn't really been prepared for this type of pandemic. The planning had gone into preparations for a flu pandemic. And so quite a lot of the the thinking that had gone into those preparations proved not to be that helpful. And, and there were real shortages that quickly surfaced in terms of PPE equipment in particular. And we were cited on where these, these problems were arising. We had a, a real-time sort of dialogue happening through a WhatsApp group that we have with, with uh, chief execs and members of our board up and down the country. It quickly became apparent how the, the pressures were really bearing down on our members. We'd seen it coming to an extent with real concern in terms of what had been happening in Italy and the sorts of pressures that were experienced there. And then when the first wave started coming through, there were real anxieties around 
what was happening, I think initially in London, particularly with the where the first surge was at its most accelerated. And although, you know, we've moved on quite a lot now in terms of, of treatment. And of course, now, thank goodness, we have the, the vaccine just starting to be implemented. At that point, very little was known about the virus and the best ways to treat it. And the death rates were really high. It was very scary. And PPE was absolutely a life and death issue and understandably real concern for our members. And what we were getting in terms of information from the government through those Downing Street briefings, unfortunately, didn't necessarily correspond with the reality that we were hearing about from our members. And I'm afraid at that point, there was a real pattern of over-promising and under-delivering. And I think PPE was a a good case in point there. And so through our contacts with members, we were able to help to uh, support, you know, identifying where the shortages were. There was a forum there for members to talk to each other and organise mutual support as well. And that was a big feature of how the NHS got through that particular difficulty. And we were able to feedback detailed information to the centre on what needed to be addressed. And that contributed to very slowly, too slowly, of course, for some, but it did contribute to the gradual assembling of a more robust PPE distribution process alongside, over time, a better sort of purchasing and supply infrastructure as well, which has put us into a stronger position now. But at the time, it was a real emergency, day by day, seeing reports coming in from trusts up and down the country of the concerns about running out of crucial PPE. Amanda, you called yourself earlier when we were speaking a pragmatist when it comes to your approach to communication. I'd love to ask you, particularly about a system you have in place for patients and their families to thank staff, which sounds wonderful and I think could be adopted elsewhere, actually. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so we have, um, in fact, just changed this as well. We have what's called a thank you and help us learn from excellent scheme. So if you come into our hospital or one of our clinics today, one of our sites today, Katie, and you're a patient, and you have great care, you can go home the same day or your partner or whatever can go online, fill in a few, uh, a little online form, and it generates a thank you card, a real life thank you card to go to whoever it is that you've mentioned on that form. So it might be a team, it might be an individual person. And when staff receive these, they love them. And as staff, we can send them to each other. We don't just have to rely on outside people. So I was holding up to Katie earlier um, a handful of cards that I myself have received. And it gives staff a real boost. Um, And what I was explaining to Katie was the real thing about these cards is they make you remember and think about what you did well. And then they encourage you to repeat that again and again. And now what we've just introduced during COVID, because very often families and patients would in normal times come back towards. So if you were treated today, Katie, you might come back in a week's time with a box of chocolates or a card or a gift or just to pop your head around and say, thank you so much for everything you did for me. And of course, we can't do that in these times. And so my patient experience manager, our sister from ICU and I sat down and had a coffee and we've talked about a scheme whereby Patients could send in photos holding up signs saying what I really liked, what I really appreciated, what mattered to me was. 
and then we could share that with staff or they could send in videos of them. So some of our COVID patients have sent in videos of how they look now and how they are now. And um, having wheeled a few out of the doors, they look very different at home back in their normal lives. And that's really important for staff because it shows the difference that they've made. And it's a real boost to morale at a time when staff are tired, had nine months of really hard work, lots changing. Um, in a very short space of time, a lot to keep up with. And so anything that we can do to create what I think of as a virtuous circle is fantastic. And the difference it makes to staff morale should never be underestimated, as well as allowing us as an organisation to learn from what goes well. Ross, what have you been seeing in terms of clever little initiatives or I'm and also conscious of the way that people needed emotional help and support at this time? I think that's an that's an interesting point. And um, in Northumbria, one of the, the key things we were keen to do was measure different hotspots around the organisation, how people were feeling and understand that. So we actually had a daily um, Corona Voice, it was called, where staff could really simply just give us a touch point of how they were feeling and raise any issues. Uh, we had about 10,400 responses from that over wow. three months. So a really big impact. And actually, a lot of that was fed directly into Gold uh, Command, where we could actually monitor what was happening, try and make things better where we could. Lots of the issues that came up weren't what you'd expect. And really? Where you'd expect. So um, actually, one of the first things that, that had happened, I think, as with lots of places, is you know everyone who didn't need to be there was sent home and wasn't there. We were kind of monitoring people's feelings and isolation and stress. We assumed it would be the guys on the front line and critical care who were most feeling, feeling that most actually that wasn't the case. It was the people who'd been sent home and were feeling isolated and not part of it. So from there, we're, straight, we're quite lucky in that we've got so much space here that we can't do that. We brought most people back uh, where there was no risk in a blended approach and in bubbles before that was sort of fairly widespread and that was the thing that really stood out for me in, in that research was actually people who were just blanket sent home I think there's a there's a there's a view that everyone just wants to work from home I don't think that's the case and certainly people were telling us that felt remote from colleagues worried more stressed than they would be actually in a blended way perhaps working from home a few days a week and then in as a bubble so so that was one of the sort of measures um would take in here on a kind of macro scale I think through the network, one of the things that I think people on the outside sometimes think is the NHS is one great big amorphous company, if you like, and it's not. It's a really federated organisation with lots of separate autonomous um, organisations that often do things in very different ways. I've never known a time where, as a sort of communications group, we've all been working together and networked and helping and supporting people where we can. And some of the first calls I made were to colleagues in London when Actually, we weren't seeing much of an impact in the northeast, but London was really swamped and, and had a few conversations just trying to help and support where I could and, and spread that around the group. And actually was quite shocked by the scale of, of what was happening there. So I think that's definitely been an area where we've improved and even just regionally now, all the regional heads of communications from all of our trusts have a call every Friday to share intelligence, swap tactics, actually make sure that we're all okay, first and foremost, because I think, you know, this is overlooked, actually, some, some something around the sort of mental health challenges. We talked, I remember, our last proper non-virtual meeting of NHS providers, one of the last things we talked about was a kind of this growing mental health crisis amongst comms people, full stop, and that was before COVID happened. 
Uh, and just we had, a, we had our virtual session last week and, and some breakout sessions around mental health. And that's just, you know, as a kind of fairly unreconstructed Geordie man, that's never been something that's on my radar, to be honest. But it is something I'm increasingly worried about for, for, for people, how they're looking after themselves. And I, I just wonder, we're all busy now and flat out working. What happens when all this stops and we don't have that, you know, to put all our energy into this? And I just do feel we're kicking this down, this can down the road yeah. a little bit. And, and some, at some point, I don't just mean for comms people, I think, you know, we're no different from anyone else. I think everybody, society, what is going to happen when we haven't got a daily update and, you know, all this energy, nervous energy to pour into work. So that was some of the things we picked up from, from our network. Um, a little bit as well about uh, what happens to business as usual. So a lot of the sort of comm stuff would be thinking about all the time. When does that pick up again? Mm. So, so that was another thing we're, we're, we're thinking about. Mm. And then, of course, you know, we'll have Brexit to, to think about once we've crossed the line on this. So there's no shortage of challenges. And that was certainly a theme um, of our last session. I just want to pause for a moment and reflect on what you've just said, because that trauma and that stress, which at the moment people cannot really focus on, as you say, but are going to need to deal with at some stage and might come back to bite them when it can't, if it ever does calm down. I think that's worth mentioning. I, I hope it doesn't sound too soppy, but actually I think that's a really serious point. And, and actually just talking about some of the stuff we talked about earlier, seeing, you know, friends who are, are wouldn't getting in full PPE makes me feel quite emotional now, even just thinking about it. And, and there's people who are far closer to it than me who will be dealing with stuff like this. And I think it's a very high pressure job anyway. A lot of the time is, you know, who cheerleads the cheerleaders, if you like. And a lot of our role is about making sure everyone's okay, they know where they get access to to help, that kind of thing. Um, But I do think it's going to be an issue. And that's certainly something I know Adam uh, were brought up in the network even even prior to all this. Yeah, and I think think you're absolutely right to emphasise that, Ross. I think... One thing, though, that that gives me some grounds for encouragement is is the way that this this issue has really been surfacing in conversations like this and our recent comms leads. Um, but also, I think there's um, my impression is that the NHS comms community has come together as never before over this period. And we've seen this in a number of ways. I suppose the most visible way to us has been through the the WhatsApp group that's associated with our comms leads network, where we see the exchange of ideas, people requesting and exchanging information, but also empathy and friendship and support. And so sort of communication happening across all kinds of different types of levels that I can really see gives value. And I think that's something that that's really valuable and I hope we're able to sustain, you know, in the coming months, whatever happens with with the pandemic. And I think that's important to to build on that. The other thing I think that is is helpful is the way that my senses, and, and I'd be interested to hear from Ross and Amanda about this, but we produced a report quite recently that looked at the experience of NHS comms during the pandemic but I, my sense is that there's a real recognition as never before now of the strategic value of comms and the contribution that comms can make in terms of navigating and steering through really difficult situations, recognised by board leadership, 
but also across organizations with other stakeholders as well. And I, I really believe and I hope that that will be a lasting legacy of this. Absolutely. I think that's an absolutely fundamental point. And, and, you know, we've been really around the top table, which is something I know people are, people go on about a lot and have asked for it. And sort of finally, we've got it, if you like. And I know just speaking from personal experience and from the shared experience that people pass on to me through the network is that, you know, communication, heads of communications and comms directors are, are closer to the chief execs and boards than they've ever been. I'd agree with Adam and um, Ross, Katie, definitely. It's been an unparalleled time. I feel very lucky. I work in a trust where I'm definitely, um, you know, work very closely and I'm um, invited to all of our executive team meetings. So I was already at the table, which put me in a very good position. I think my learning has really been about the impact of communications on those we communicate with. And if I can just read you one of the things that we've all had some emotional moments, haven't we? Um, as Ross was saying, but this was one of the moments that got me. We just got a little note back in from some one of our members of staff who was about May or June, I think, so a few months in. And she said, I would just like to say what a fantastic job you have done during this pandemic. When the news was full of doom and gloom, you sent positive messages to us. My family members have commented on what, how wonderful it is to see the heartwarming stories on Facebook, etc. This in particular helped my children see that it's okay for mummy to be in work when they've been told it's unsafe to be in school. Just thought I'd like, I'd like to say a little thank you. Mm. And I think probably what I've experienced as never before is the thirst for information. There was a real vacuum. People wanted information. They wanted assurance. So whether it was about availability of PPE or which we were using as our red wards or how many patients we had discharged that week, whatever it was, it could be very, very practical stuff too. We've also had something called PPE for the mind. We've done lots of psychological sessions, et cetera. Um, I'm a trained coach. We've um, upped our coaching availability during this time. Just about, I think for me, the gratitude is in being in the jobs that we are, we can make a huge positive difference. And I think certainly we have many examples in our organisation of how we've done that. And as Ross says, there's me and Ross times many, many of us right across the country. And the positive difference that will have been made by communications leads, both to patients and their families and to staff, is something to be celebrated, actually. I agree. One of the things that, that I was reminded of when I was reflecting on this a bit was about the importance of the fundamentals and remembering those fundamentals. I think often in a normal world, in a normal cycle, we've got so much stuff going on, you know, whether that's, um, you know, looking after the comms for sort of 10 hospitals, GPs, out of hours, you can imagine uh, you're often firefighting, but planning the positive stuff as well. There's so much going on. I think sometimes you can forget about the fundamentals and just get stuff out and to get through the day. So one thing is definitely taught me, I think, is thinking about and remembering those fundamentals of good comms and knowing your audience and knowing what works and actually pushing back a bit with things you, you don't think will work. Right. And that was something at Gold I was very keen to do and, and we don't want to fill the space with, you know, just day-to-day -day stuff. It People were, as Amanda said, were desperate for news about issues that, you know, impacted on them and sometimes some of the other stuff just had to be dropped and I think that's been a really useful exercise um, I know at first we were really keen if there wasn't anything to say then you know don't say it 
but you can't over communicate as well as under communicate i think and, and what we really tried to do was make it need to know that so that people could trust those channels and know that it wasn't just going to be you know some of the usual guff that they might be getting sent up and just want to scan through Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I would say, it, it, just to build on what Amanda said, was this importance of, of a bit of hope. I think, you know, some of the national messaging and some of the media coverage was, you know, understandably very dark and very grim, but actually people need a bit of hope. And some of the stuff we'd be pushing out, which would traditionally be maybe an external PR matter, was brought back into the internal comms. So the stuff I mentioned about the car park, we've got a really big local story out of that because someone had took time and gone around and put 500 of these cards out. And actually it was just giving people a little bit of hope. And sometimes perhaps not necessarily going with exactly the national line because local voice is very important, especially where we are. And I guess Amanda as well, being so far from the centre, people in the northeast of England, and I say this with absolute you know, due deference and respect, are not interested in what someone in London has to say about no. their life. And actually trying to focus on people in suits in London, telling them you mustn't do this, mustn't do that, just really struggles to work at a local level. And that's where we felt we could add lots of value by using the right trusted spokespeople to, to give those same messages, but in a way that would be understandable to you know, people from Blythe and people from, from Newcastle or wherever it might be um, in a much more trusted way. But also, as well, as I said, providing a little bit of hope, a little bit of good news to so the videos of people being clapped out of areas you know some some of the stuff staff were doing and really kind of projecting that outwards and inwards and I think that was a really important part of um, what we were doing. It was absolutely essential Boston and you're right which is why those um, videos and images back from our patients who have been with us so particularly our COVID patients have been so important because they allow staff to see the real difference they've made Um, I also think there's something about giving people not just hope, but a role and a purpose. So it's really interesting. In the early days, one of our um, doctors and one of our um, associates, actually, they created bags of kindness and they literally filled them with all sorts of goodies and took them right around the organisation and were supporting them in doing this. And I think people need something positive to do. So one of the things we've done is created a network of hands face space champions because we were getting some concerns from some people. And there's obviously people have a spectrum of anxiety and some people were quite anxious about hands face space, social distancing, etc. So um, we had an idea about creating a network of staff and our volunteers um, who could be our champions in this regard. So myself, um, our director, of one of our associate nurses who's our, our director for mass vaccination and testing and joe one of our doctors from occupational health um decided to create this network and we've got now 93 people every week we give them an education session so we've had education sessions on the evidence behind hands face space behavioral science and how that can support hands face space um, we've heard from one of our staff who's got long covid from areas that have had outbreaks. And every week we put on an education session for them and they can get CPD points out of that too. And in exchange, they are our ambassadors out in their local areas. So all the learning that we give them, they translate. Um, They have hands-face-based lanyards and they love it. And the feedback has been absolutely brilliant. And one of the volunteers came in today and she said to me, I just love to belong to something and be able to make a difference in this way. Um, 
And what we've done is we've just got people to say if they wanted to be a champion or not. So there's a, this is a real ground level movement. So I think there's definitely something about in these very uncertain times, offering people something positive to do. And then the, when they run with that, it's fantastic to see. I think- just add to that, uh, Katie. Um, I think that, that this is so important that it's in, that we felt it was important at a, at a national level as well to identify amid the the horrors of the pandemic the real examples of innovation often staff driven to make sure that patients got the very best care that was possible we have a program called providers deliver which identifies ways that that trusts have thought through new ways to overcome the challenges that that covid has has presented we had um, a showcase at our uh, conference, at our annual conference virtual showcase, uh, Providers Deliver Live, which uh, we had dozens of examples sent through to us of ways in which trusted innovated to support their workforce, come up with new ways of making sure that patients can access treatment. But also through the, the, the Providers Deliver report we did as well, we had other examples where, for example, in Ross's trust, there were innovations in terms of trust getting involved with the manufacturer of PPE. Adam, your report actually said Providers Deliver, there was a report out in October, I think, Providers Deliver Resilient and Resourceful Through COVID-19. And it says in many ways, the NHS with COVID-19 looks very different to the NHS before the virus arrived on our shores in February. I mean, you've just talked about some of the ways, some of the innovation and the fresh thinking that actually, you know, health care providers were coming up with. Are there some big structural changes, do you think, that the NHS is going to have gone through that's going to have changed it dramatically as a result of this crisis? Or is it too soon to say? Well, I think there are some developments and some lessons that I hope won't be unlearned. And I think that what the NHS achieved in responding to the, the first wave and then the continuing efforts we see now was absolutely remarkable. The agility of the NHS to respond on a massive scale to an unforeseen, hugely complex and challenging crisis was, was exceptional. And I think that we have shown ourselves in some ways that there's an opportunity to cut through intractable intractable problems, which in some ways have been holding up progress for a long way. So the way that more than 30,000 additional beds were created, you know, at the drop of a hat, that was an amazing achievement, the mobilisation of those Nightingale hospitals. I think it was a reminder, too, of the extraordinary commitment of of NHS staff to carry on through the the difficulties of this period. But also, I think it really has underwritten that sort of compact between the public and the NHS as well. That was manifested in the applause for the NHS. But I think there's a lasting legacy there that the NHS can build on, hopefully in terms of future recruitment. We have nearly 100,000 vacancies in the NHS but I think there's there's a there's there are heartening signs of of renewed interest in careers in the NHS, which we certainly will need for the future. I think another example is the way that new partnerships have been forged 
um, between NHS organizations, but also with other organizations to make things happen locally. We, we're experiencing big changes across the health and care sector at the moment with the development of what's called system working with different types of organizations coming together to plan and deliver care. And that has been in some ways sort of accelerated by this process. But what's been interesting to see has been how often it's been about organizations coming together at a very local level just to make things happen. And I think comms has been a very important ingredient in being a change maker. And I think those relationships have, have bedded in and I think that bodes very well for the future. Mm-hmm. Adam, while I have you, can you venture a view, an opinion on those government briefings? You mentioned them earlier and you said there was a tendency to slightly overpromise and underdeliver. They have changed, I think it's fair to say. They have evolved since the beginning, but I don't know whether you feel able to share your thoughts on how successful you think the government was in getting their message across? So I think, unfortunately, there have been some quite damaging examples of where politicians, in the, in the midst of so much bad news, have been wanting to convey a sense of control and have wanted to make things better just by saying it will be so. I think the example of, you know, some of the things that were said about the testing programme, the world-beating testing programme, which, you know, which evidently wasn't and continues to to have problems. There have been big strides in terms of tests, but it's still in the place we would have wanted it to be. I think the the government is tortured even as we speak about the the dual pressures of wanting to ease restrictions on people's lives as we head towards the festive season. And yet at the same time, knowing what is the right thing to do in terms of um, making the case to observe tighter restrictions in order to reduce social contact, in order to reduce infections and therefore pressure on the NHS and therefore allow the NHS to provide the best possible quality of care for all patients, COVID and non-COVID, as we head towards the most the most vulnerable time of the year for the NHS, which is January and February. So I think, you know, we're continuing to see those political pressures played out, not necessarily to the best advantage of the NHS. And we have to continue to make the case for the government to do the right thing. Ross and Amanda, it would be terribly remiss of me not to mention where we are right now with, I'm sure, the biggest vaccination programme the world has ever seen, and certainly the UK has ever seen, the NHS has ever had to embark on. What are people thinking of feeling on the ground? What are some of the, the messaging? How? Yes, tell me all about vaccination. So, so in Plymouth, we are one of the 50 uh, vaccination hubs. Actually, I would say what we're doing with mass vaccination is what the NHS does best. The NHS is fantastic at responding in an emergency, exactly as Adam has outlined I think at heart, the sort of purpose of the NHS is almost the most expert, highly skilled delivery of kindness. And I think the mass vaccination programme is a great example of that. So what's happened in the mass vaccination for us is a great almost example of what's happened right throughout COVID. We've brought together a team. We've made a team out of disparate staff of vaccinators who are all working together. And if you go down to our vaccination clinic, as I've been down many times over the last few days, 
actually is a great atmosphere there. And we've put it in our Durnford Centre for Health and Wellbeing. So it's in a big gym. Uh, it looks like we've created a, it, turned it into a lovely clinical space. And there's a really good atmosphere. And the feedback we're getting from patients is fantastic. Really good feedback from patients and staff as well who've been through the clinic. So it's great. And it's been a real challenge. I'm not going to lie. And I don't know about Ross, but I'm head of communications, but I also sometimes get involved in other things too. So I've spent a fair bit of my last few days helping out the logistics of the clinic as well. And it has been a challenge. It's been a challenge every time you get a new delivery of the vaccine because you only have so many, so much time to use it. Um, and we're focusing on patients, outpatients over 80 as they come in uh, to clinic. So um, you're really trying, there's a logistical challenge about matching up your priority group with your vaccination clinic slots. But I'm, I'm really, really pleased to say that ours is going very well um, and the team behind it are fantastic. And I am privileged again to be part of that delivery team. And I, you know, these are one of the things that I think, you know, Ross, when we're older, and in our in our dotage, we can look back and all the things that I am, you know, putting my head to my hands over now in time will be a privilege to have been part of the thing. You don't look any different, Amanda. I'm I'm aging like a, an American president over here. <laughs> Didn't have grey hair till this started. We spend a lot of time talking about how technically challenging it is. And in the Northeast, we have a fantastic record actually of, of delivering vaccinations, whether that's the flu or, or childhood inoculations and I'd think this is the sort of the thing the NHS does it does really well and if they're given the tools and the kit to do it they will just crack on. There's one question that's sort of bugging me is itching at me to ask you and that is the amount of noise there is particularly on social media uh, unhelpful noise fake news other things conspiracy theories feel about all that does that massively frustrate you or do you just not look at it pretend it's not there and carry on I'm just I'm just curious because I'm getting to the stage with Twitter that I'm almost thinking of deleting it from my phone I don't know how the others feel about this but this is this is where I think we are on this um firstly it's a, it comes down to trust and every year I look at the Ipsos Mori poll that they do about trusting professions and every single year I've worked in this sector uh, it's been nurses number one, doctors number two. So people are naturally sceptical. And if you look at some of the things people have been told by politicians and not singling out anyone, but by all sorts of people, it's little wonder that people are sceptical right. about things. But when it comes down to important life decisions, what I find is that people will trust those people, those trusted sort of community figures who they see it all the time, whether that's a nurse or a doctor. And actually, we've done a lot of planning at who those spokespeople are, and we've got a lot of stuff lined up locally, ready to go when the time's right. And, and that's some I've got a lot of faith in that. The other bit of it, I think we spent a lot of time talking about what is probably a very small percent of, you know, number right. of people who are these, you know, complete anti-vax, which, you know, that that's fine. But I do think that is a... It's quite a small group. I think there's another group of people who are naturally cautious and unsure and want more information about how we've arrived at this vaccine. And again, I think that's perfectly normal and rational. And I think those are the, the not irreconcilable people, the people who, you know, again, will trust the right people and take that advice and, and hopefully make the right decision. I, I do sometimes wonder, take your point, the more we talk about really tiny groups of opinions, suddenly the Barbra Streisand effect or whatever you call it comes into play and we'll give it a lot more credence. But 
I guess we'll see what we will roll out. Um, I, I certainly, where I am in the country, don't necessarily feel that, but it, it might be different in different areas. Mm-hmm. I think, Casey, you raise an important question, and um, notwithstanding the the way the vaccine programme has been put in into practice, personally, it does worry me that there is this current of opinion and um, there are these uh, sort of predispositions in, obviously on in social media, but also in the sort of mainstream media as well, to seize on disappointments and failures and setbacks. And I think that we will have to be ready for that. That, of course, on such a massive programme, there is the, the possibility of some slips along the way. But I think, I mean, it's an abiding rule in terms of the way we communicate with authenticity, where we're careful to base our comments on on the evidence. And also we speak about what we know about and don't try to speak about stuff that we don't know about. That is is a good formula to go by. Mm. And it's really heartening, as Ross said, the degree of trust there is in NHS uh, professionals like, like nurses and doctors. And that's a, a fantastic foundation to build on, that well of goodwill towards the NHS. And so hopefully that will create a, a positive momentum for this campaign. But I, I, I have to say that it does concern me that although that anti-vax element is very small, it is vociferous and quite good at grabbing attention. So that that's something that I would keep quite a close eye on. And hopefully we can see, you know, from you know, common sense prevail. Mm-hmm. The other thing I would add to that, just to, to, to finish that off, I suppose, is one thing we haven't talked about is that we've got probably two audiences in this. So we've got the mass vaccination that we're talking about with the public, but actually our staff are a really big audience as well. And there's a it's a slightly different um, atmosphere to that, I think, in that originally the plan, of course, was to uh, to inoculate frontline staff very quickly and straight away. Then there was a, a sort of a, a change in the prioritisation and, and we've gone for, um, you know, all done more vulnerable groups. So I think there's something as well about managing expectations of your workforce of when they'll, they'll get their um, jab as well. So... We're acutely aware that we've got those two kind of um, competing audiences at the moment as well. Just on that note, we have taken um, the approach that we pretty much take with everything in terms of we've deliberately held lots of meetings, um, virtual meetings with staff about vaccination for them to be able to ask questions, for their colleagues to be able to answer them. And that's gone down really well. One of the things that our staff told us about during the pandemic was it's okay for our leaders not to have all the answers. It's okay for them to sometimes say we don't know and it's okay for them to be vulnerable. And I think there's definitely something in real honesty. You know, for example, uh, we are often asked about long-term impact and we've got so many experts in the organisation who can help answer it um, and they can help answer colleagues. But we found that the sessions that we've run for staff on vaccination have been really well attended, great questions. We actually went out and surveyed staff and we asked staff, we said, what would you find useful to know before you have the vaccination or before you make a decision? They told us what they wanted to know. We pulled together all the information that we could from all the myriads of sources, all well-sourced and referenced, and gave that back to them. 
And the other question we asked was, what would encourage you to have the vaccination? So, you know, it's about really understanding what's on their minds, what questions they want answered, and really engaging in that rich two-way conversation and not being afraid to say, we don't know that yet. Or we don't know that we don't quite have the answer, but as this is what this is where it will come from. I this is when that. we might have that. I love that. I love the idea of laying the groundwork and asking before you tell. <laughs> so such a simple but clever idea. So in the time that we have available, I just wonder if we could ask you to take the long view on this. Step right back. Two final questions, really. What's the most important comms lesson the NHS has learned, do you think, as a result of this crisis? And then on a much more personal level, what's been the biggest comms lesson that you'd be happy to share with a wider comms community listening? For comms, from where I sit, it's been almost a, a, a sort of validation of comms that you really can demonstrably make the difference uh, at a strategic level and and demonstrate that with the right opportunity comms can can absolutely form a, a core sort of leadership role in in the organization and then from a personal point of view and this is a lesson that unfortunately I have to continue to learn the whole time but I think it's coming back to that self-care lesson a recognition trying to to understand and recognize when I am sort of running my batteries flat and and therefore not performing as I would hope to perform and therefore having the discipline which I think it is a discipline to step back and take some you know get take my head into a different place and I think, you know, it's it's tempting to sort of keep on at it because that's what the job keeps on demanding. But actually to do it better, you need to attend to yourself as well. Mm, good point, Adam. Katie, I think I'll come from the second question first. So what's my personal learning been? I think my personal learning is really something I've known all along, which is it's always about the people and how they feel. And actually, one of the things that we found during the pandemic is the need to pay more attention to how people feel and to notice more and be more observant. And actually, through some of the virtual working, we found out more about each other. You know, who's got dogs, who has children, who lives in a house they're doing up, et cetera, et cetera. All those lovely things. So actually, there's something about, for me, I always, one of the things I'm always saying to my exec team is, it's always about the people. It's always about the people and how they feel because you can put in process and you can put in policy, but people will subvert that if the way they feel is different. So really understanding some of the behavioural science and some of the cognitive biases that we all hold and really, really getting to grips with how people feel. And the speed at which that has changed during this period, I think is what's been quite challenging. But my number one rule to myself is it's always about the people and how they feel. And I suppose the lesson I think for comms is probably the Captain Tom lesson, which is, very allied to what I've just said is it's about the stories because mm. that's how we understand things in a world in which we're surrounded by data I work in a hospital we've got lots of data I'm a great evaluator and um, love data myself but it's interesting that stories are the way that we connect 
you know, and that lovely story about Captain Tom and Ross and I have a million stories that we ourselves could tell of our wonderful staff and patients, etc. And those stories are really what have resonated with our staff and help boost morale and lift them and our patients and our communities. So for me, the power of stories is something that, you know, I will always be amazed at, but in my job, always hopefully utilised to best advantage. Wonderful. Ross? Just to, to, to finish off, I'd agree absolutely with what the others have said. And I think for me, there's been something about that we are better together. And actually, this has really helped me understand that, you know, we'll have a network behind us. We'll have so many different people who can give you advice and support. And often it's the, the people you least expect, actually, colleagues who I was working with on Gold Command, who might be a, a sort of obstetrician by day, actually, but had a good, you know, getting advice from on your personal impact or how you're feeling was very helpful. And I think um, what I'd say is just remember the fundamentals and trust your instincts and actually not to be afraid if you think, you know, this is the wrong thing to do or this isn't right, even if that is a difficult message perhaps for, you know, some of the colleagues you work with to take or even at a national level where, you know, people want you to do one thing and it just doesn't feel right for your audience, I think. And that's one thing that will definitely stick with me. Guys, as we wrap up, I feel I have to say on behalf of everyone listening, thank you so much for everything you've done this year. I, I, I mean, we all clapped for the NHS, but I felt I had to say that because you've played such a pivotal role in forming, motivating, inspiring, guiding people on the front line. And we've all benefited from that as a society. So I just want to pay tribute to your hard work and the many, many long hours you must have spent this year. I hope you get a bit of a break over Christmas. <laughs> well, it's really funny, isn't it? Um, how, I don't know about you, but I've been so mired in work that it's very occasionally that I will hit, be hit by emotion. Um, and it's at the strangest points, isn't it? Because one of the things we don't get an awful lot of time for, I think Adam was sort of hinting at this, is reflection. So it's, Katie, when you sort of said thank you to us, it, it's quite strange because... It's our job and we get on with it. Don't know if you yeah. feel the same, Robert. Yeah, absolutely right, Amanda. And actually, it's not often I do think about it, but uh, you're absolutely right. It, it, I think perhaps as we're coming to the end of it and we've all sort of touch wood got through it, that, that will start just unravelling a bit. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. I think that's what happens. The pressure stops for a moment and you... Yeah. Absolutely. Great. Thank you so much, guys. Take care. Thank you. So that's a wrap for this episode, number 41, and the last show of season four of the Internal Comms podcast. If you enjoyed this show, I'd be extremely grateful if you could rate it on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, because I'm told that increases the chances of us being discoverable for other IC pros out there. Thank you very much. For the show notes to this episode, head over to the podcast page of AB's website. That's abcom, abcowm.co.uk forward slash podcasts. And while you're there, you might like to sign up for our monthly newsletter. It's called I Saw This and Thought of You. It will give you updates on the show, plus other newsy nuggets from the world of internal comms. We are already lining up a really exciting range of guests for season five of the show, which kicks off in January 2021. If you know someone who would make a great guest, 
please do not hesitate to get in touch. You can email me directly at icpodcast at abcom.co.uk. So all that remains, lovely listeners, is to say a massive thank you. We have had more than 30,000 downloads of this show in more than 50 countries throughout this year. It's been a tough year for communicators everywhere, and it's been a privilege to share this year with you. So until we meet again, have a safe, relaxing holiday season. And remember, as ever, it's what's inside that counts. 